So this morning we are continuing in the series in the book of Judges. And we come to Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 31. This can be found on page 202 in your pew Bible. That's Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 31. Hear now the eternal living word of God. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel the son of Canaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill of Ephraim, 
Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with the ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So the book of Judges, reading through it, reminds me of what happens in dysfunctional families, where there's this generational cycle of dysfunction. All right, these families that have some serious abuse issues. And then because these environments are toxic to children, the children tend to carry this cycle of dysfunction into their own lives and then into their own families. And most teachers can tell you of numerous experiences we have where we have a disruptive and disrespectful student and then we finally have a meeting with the parent and then you just say to yourself, oh, that's why he acts the way he does. But this cycle of dysfunctional families can be broken. There are people who grow up in these homes and they break out of the cycle through love, through the help of others, and through the faithfulness of God. The book of Judges chronicles a cycle of its own. It gives an account of the serious sin of God's people, but also God's faithfulness in the face of their sin. God is a holy, just God. He must judge sin. But he's also a loving and faithful God. He delivers his people from the judgment of their sin. Consider the story of Noah, where God saw the wickedness that pervades the heart of humanity. And he justly saw that the whole earth deserved his judgment. And he declared to judge the wicked through a flood, by undoing creation and flooding the whole earth. But in this same moment, one man, Noah, and his family found God's grace. Through the grace given to Noah, God delivered his people and all of creation. So God saved Noah from his own wrath of judgment. And now this morning, from our passage, we'll see that although God's people are sinners, deserving his judgment, God faithfully delivers his people from his judgment of their sins. So our text this morning begins the cycle of the judges. There are 12 judges, and this is not in a judicial sense, judges with a robe that we would think of today. But the judges were military leaders. God raised them up to deliver his people from oppression. And there are 12 judges throughout the books. Six major judges and six minor judges. And the difference between major and minor judges is really about how much is told about the judges. The major judges have their stories told with including at least some detail, whereas the minor judges are just briefly mentioned. And our passage today gives us two major judges, Othniel and Ehud, and one minor judge, Shamgar. Othniel is the first judge mentioned in the book, and he really is the prototype for the rest of the judges. In Othniel, the 
model for the judges is given. And so also throughout this book, we mentioned there's a cycle. And we actually see this cycle in full in the story of Othniel. It's the only place where we see the full cycle explicitly mentioned. The only judge that it happens for. And so the cycle always begins with the people of Israel turning away from God. Or doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Namely, this is worshipping the pagan gods, the idols of the Canaanites. We see this in verse 7. And the people of the Lord did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. The people of Israel, the people of God, were worshipping false pagan gods of the nations. These were the nations that they failed to conquer in the promised land as they were commanded. And their failure to destroy the Canaanites, as God commanded them to do, led to further evil. Right now, they were forgot Yahweh, their God. And so that doesn't mean that they forgot that he existed. They didn't have a case of amnesia that they completely forgot that Yahweh even existed. This isn't a forgetting in the head. It's a forgetting that takes place in the heart. The Apostle Paul describes this problem well in Romans 1 verse 21. He wrote, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they came, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It means they disregarded Yahweh. They were living as if he didn't exist. Because they completely failed to defeat the Canaanites as they were commanded, now they were forgetting God in their hearts. They were going deeper into sin. They were serving the fake, false, pagan gods of the Canaanites. Now it's easy for us to judge them. And we could question them, how could they possibly do this? How could they turn their back on God to worship these fake gods? But we all forget God in our hearts at times as well. God is forgotten in our hearts, and idols take prominence. This is when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, where we worship the creature rather than the creator. But John Calvin once wrote that the human heart is a perpetual idol factor. We have an idol when we have shallow thinking about God, when we doubt his power and his sovereignty, when we think less of him, and then we replace him in our hearts with something else. It could be security, sex, wealth, power, even religious activity. And people today in our culture constantly place their hope and security in things, in careers, bank accounts, people, or anything other than the sovereign grace of God. Imagine a person who thinks, if I just get the job promotion that I want, then my life will be fixed. This is what I need. Then they pour themselves into their work, sacrificing their family life, their social life, even their spiritual life. And they sacrifice all of this at the altar of the idol they've made of their career. Even in the church, people make idols of their service. I once had to deal with someone who was in charge of the children's ministry at church. And she was so puffed up with pride from the work that she was doing that her role in the children's ministry became an idol. And she protected this idol at all costs, bullying and intimidating anyone who threatened her control. She had sinful anger, even rage, when I challenged her on the question of curriculum. Sometimes even good things can be idols controlling our hearts. 
And we can easily worship these idols without even realizing we're doing it. But God demands lordship over every area of our life. Halfway discipleship is simple because we haven't fully given our hearts to God. We can't compartmentalize God and only devote a portion of our lives to him. He demands all of our hearts and all of our life in service. And so I want to pause to ask you to examine yourselves. Where are the idols in your heart? Where are the areas where you put yourself and what you want over the service of the Lord and the worship of him? It happens to all of us in some way. But fortunately, God doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave his people in our sin. And we see in the book of Judges, the sin of Israel brings about the second part of the cycle. God's judgment. In verse 8 we read, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishak, Baim, king of Mesopotamia. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God's judgment was upon them. And as an act of judgment, he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishak, Baim, king of Mesopotamia. Now it's important to distinguish a couple of things. First of all, God's dealing with his covenant people. Right? from its judgment in general. God's retributive justice is pure punishment. It's unmitigated by grace. And this is for those who are outside the covenant, those who have no hope or without God in the world. And the ultimate permanent expression of retributive justice is hell. But within God's covenant with his people, a different type of justice is taking place. This justice is an act of discipline. It's corrective rather than retributive, and it's always tempered by grace. Now, this doesn't mean everything that happens to us in a negative way is his discipline, but God does discipline his people, and the aim is to restore rather than destroy. There are consequences to sin, and in this case, it's not simply a natural consequence, but rather God is punishing his people for their sin and a rebellion against him. And God's discipline comes through the king of Mesopotamia. Now we're not told much about this king, other than he's from Mesopotamia, and his name is Kushan Rishaphaim, and that the people of Israel served him eight years. It's interesting that the second part of his name, Rishaphaim, literally means double wicked. Kushan, the doubly wicked king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel were oppressed by this evil tyrant. And it's not that he snatched them out of God's hands, but rather God handed them over to him. And they suffered under his rule for eight years. But God not only sovereignly handed them over in judgment, but he also graciously brings their suffering to an end. The next part of the cycle we see is the people of Israel cry out to God. And then God raises up a savior, a judge, to deliver them from the hand of this foreign oppressor. Verse 9 says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. God, in his mercy and his grace, responded to the cry of his people. And he did the same thing for their ancestors back in Egypt. There is hope for those who cry out, to the Lord. In this case, God raises up a deliverer, Othniel, to save his people. We're reminded here that he is Caleb's nephew. 
We're introduced to Othniel actually back in Judges chapter 1. And this, there he bravely captures a piece of the promised land from the Canaanites. He obediently follows the commands to do this, and he wins Caleb's daughter as his wife for doing so. They were given a piece of land by Caleb. And so in this first cycle of the judges, we see Othniel. This is an ideal cycle. Othniel doesn't have any explicit flaws mentioned like the rest of the judges we will see. It's, only, it's the only judge that actually explicitly mentions all of the pieces of the cycle. The people sinned. They forgot the Lord, their God. God is angry with their sin and their betrayal. And in his judgment, he hands them over to their enemies. In this case, Kushan, doubly wicked. Then the, peace, the people cry out to the Lord. Then God delivers them from his judgment. And God's grace and mercy comes through God raising up a single chosen leader to save his people. In this case, Othniel, the nephew of Caleb. Then there is peace in the land where the land had rest for 40 years. Othniel, like Caleb, is from the tribe of Judah. And this tribe was singled out for leadership and performed remarkably well in the first chapter of Judges. And so now this first exemplar judge comes from Judah. He's a man of character. Plus, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. So he's empowered by the Spirit, and he led Israel to war. And God gave Cushan double wicket into his hand, and he defeated him. God raised up this Spirit-empowered Savior for his people, and the land had rest for 40 years. So the rest was a gift from God. It came from his salvation. But in a fallen world, rest cannot be permanent. Othniel is a sinner. Therefore, he dies. And the story of Othniel shows what God can accomplish through a godly leader. God brings relief from oppression, deliverance from his judgment, and rest. Othniel sets the tone as the model judge, and through this first cycle of the judges, we notice the first, the pervasive sin in the hearts of God's people. It causes them to forget God in their hearts. And this is when you know something in your head, but it has no effect in your lives. We know intellectually the truth about God, but there are times when we live as if it isn't true. And this is when other things, idols, can creep into the primary position in our hearts. One example for me was my career as a sports coach. I was a college soccer coach and high school soccer coach 17 years. And I was so driven to make it as a soccer coach that it became an idol for me. Pursuing this passion took the primary position in my heart. But I had no idea at the time. Because our hearts are deceptive. We sin unknowingly often. We pursue idols without even realizing it. And for me, there were consequences to this. It put a strain on my family life because I wasn't around as much as I needed to be. And ultimately, it weakened my relationship with the Lord because something other than Him was in His place in my heart. I knew about Him. I was actually increasing my head knowledge of Him at this time, but I wasn't living in light of this knowledge. God's judgment, specifically in Judges, takes the form of Him handing them over to an oppressive dictator. Then when they cry out, He, bring, he gives mercy upon His people. He raises up this judge to deliver them, and the land has rest. But Othniel's not the only judge we have in our passage. As we said, Othniel dies, and the cycle begins again. 
Starting in verse 12, we read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So after Othniel dies, the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This forgetting the Lord in their hearts and worshiping idols. So after God raises up Othniel to save them from the punishment of their sins, the land has rest 40 years. They don't thank God for the rest. They don't change and repent and turn away. Instead, they turn away from God, forgetting him. They go back to the idols. This shows us this pervasiveness of sin. We keep turning to sin. Our hearts are wicked. And so for Israel, as a punishment, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab this time, who defeats Israel. And it says they took possession of the city of Palms, which is another name for Jericho. And this is important. It tells us the dire state of the situation. This city of Jericho, where God once had given his obedient people victory over their enemies with Joshua, now God is giving victory to their enemies in Eglon, the king of Moab, because of their disobedience. And they served him longer than the first cycle. The first time it was eight years. Now it's 18 years. And once again, the cycle continues. Verse 15, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So God faithfully raises another judge to deliver his unfaithful people. This time it's Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin. And so one thing we'll notice as you go through the book of Judges, that there's a downward spiral. The judges become more flawed as time goes on. Their, their sin becomes more explicit, and the sins of the people become worse as well. And so now we see Ehud is, first he's from the tribe of Benjamin. So if Judah was destined for leadership all the way back from the time of the patriarchs, they also had a stellar record in the opening book of Judges. Benjamin's record is much worse. The only thing they're mentioned for in the opening book of the Judges is that they didn't drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. So while Judah was successful, Benjamin was a failure. And this points us actually to the future of the kings of Israel. David comes from the line of Judah, where Saul comes from the line of Benjamin. It also points us forward to Jesus himself coming from the tribe of Judah. Now it also says that Ehud is left-handed. This is actually literally translated as impeded or restricted in his right hand. So we're not really sure if this is simply a figure of speech for being left-handed or if he actually has some deformity in his right hand. But we do know that a strong right hand or a strong right arm was considered a soldier or a warrior's greatest asset. They would keep their sword strapped to their left side so they could fight with their right arm. Ehud being mentioned as left-handed or unable to use his right hand is peculiar for a military leader or judge. This meant that he was weak where a warrior was meant to be strong. But we can remember that God raised him up. 
And God can bring about his grace and his mercy for his people however he chooses. God's strength is often made known through human weakness. And although we're not, we were given not many details in the Othman story, we're given a pretty interesting story about how Ehud delivers Israel. Picking up in verse 15, it says, The people of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. So Ehud goes to the king of Moab to give him a tribute from the people of Israel. And this is interesting because Ehud is the chosen deliverer of Israel. Yet the story begins not with him delivering Israel, but delivering a tribute to their enemy. And a tribute is a payment, but it's not only a payment. The one making the payment in a tribute recognizes their submission to the recipient. And that doesn't sound like someone who's about to defeat Eglon. The guy who's supposed to defeat you and your army usually doesn't show up with a payment in submission first. But then in verse 16 it says, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So we see next he made a sword and he hid it on his right side. And this detail is included because typically swords were kept on the left side. So you could access them with your right hand. So if the guards were looking for the sword, they may not even check the right side. So he presents the tribute. There's no mention of them finding the sword. It does say that Eglon was a very fat man. Now, this probably wasn't meant to insult him. In the ancient world, fatness was actually seen as a sign of prosperity and good fortune. It actually is that way in some cultures today. It's more likely that we see a man who has gotten fat off the oppressed backs of Israel and their tributes. Then the story takes a twist in verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And so now we see that Ehud had a plan in delivering this tribute. There was a method to his madness. After dropping it off, he's about to leave and he turns back saying, I have a secret message for you. And Eglon falls right into his trap. He sends everyone away. And this gives Ehud a private audience, perfect for an assassin, which was his plan from the beginning. In verse 20, it says, And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So it's a bit of a gruesome scene. First, Ehud tells him he has a message from God for him. And Eglon, the very fat man, stands up, and he immediately stabs him in the belly with his blade. And the whole sword goes into his belly, and he doesn't even pull it out. And it says, the dung came out. Now this grossly odd detail is actually an important part of Ehud's escape. After he kills Eglon, Ehud closes the door of the roof chamber and locks them. And so he was able to get this private audience with the king. He was able to assassinate him, but now he has to escape. And I'm sure there are guards everywhere. So we read in verse 24, When he had gone, the servants came. 
And when they saw that the doors of the root chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So now the guards noticed that the doors were locked, but they thought he was relieving himself. They must have smelled the dung that came out of him when he was stabbed. It says, and they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did, still did not open the doors of the root chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And so it was this delay that allowed Ehud to escape. So then from there, he goes to the hill country of Ephraim. And he gathers an army and they go and they defeat the army of Moab. 10,000 Moabite soldiers. They killed them all. Not a man escaped. And the result is this time the land had rest 80 years. And now, although it's not explicitly mentioned, we know it's inevitable. Ehud dies. And so the need for another savior comes about. And we get a brief story about Shamgar. In verse 31, it says, After him, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. One thing all of the judges have in common is that God raised them up to save their people. The book of Judges reveals the sins of Israel, the pervasively wicked hearts of God's people, and they repeatedly turn back to sin. They consistently forget God in their hearts and turn to idols. But God in his faithfulness, repeatedly saves them. In his grace and mercy for his people, God doesn't lead them to their sin. One commentator observes that throughout the book of Judges, there's a tension. right? Because God is holy and just, he cannot tolerate or live with or bless evil. But God is also loving and faithful. He cannot tolerate losing his people that he has committed himself to. So the tension becomes... Will God finally give up on his people? But then what about his faithfulness? Or will God finally give in to his people? But then what about his holiness? And this tension seems like it can't be resolved. That's because no mere human can resolve this tension. But God eventually provides the ultimate deliverer. That is, God himself takes on flesh to save his people. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ that... God faithfully and finally delivers his people. And by doing this, his faithfulness and his holiness remains. Because of our sins, the sins of God's chosen people throughout time were imputed to Jesus Christ. That is, they were transferred to his account, his record. And he took the penalty we deserve. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. So therefore, God's perfect holiness, justice, and righteousness remains. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, God also remains loving and faithful to his people. Because it's through the cross of Jesus Christ that he's now able to accept us and forgive us. The cross of Jesus Christ, God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So though, although we all consistently turn from God, God never abandons us. And in the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he gives us a new heart. He gives us his spirit. So not only are we seen in God's eyes with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but we're actually being conformed into his image. God is bringing about the righteousness of Christ in the hearts of his people. That's our sanctification. 
the process of being conformed into the image of Christ. And it's God both working in us and through us. So may all of you continue to put off any idols in your heart. May we all continue to walk toward holiness, to walk toward the image of Christ. Because although we all often forget God in our hearts, God loves us so much he sacrificed his only son that we may never be forgotten by him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are a good and merciful God, but you are also holy and just. We often turn away from you following idols in our hearts, worshiping the creature and the creation rather than the creator. But you are faithful and steadfast. You love us so much that you redeemed us at the cost of your son, and you restored our relationship with you. We praise you for your gift of grace. We praise you for your holiness. We praise you that we are now your people and we will be with you for eternity. Continue to work in our hearts that we may reject any idols we have and we may turn to you in repentance. May your spirit guide us and refine us, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.